So our last evidence, um, we placed it last because it's going to be a little bit different from the other three types. Uh, the, other, the first three types of evidences we talked about for the existence of God all were kind of in a, like a formula kind of a, a, a structure. This has this, 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 so therefore this. Today is going to be a little bit different, and a lot of people would view this as weaker than other types of arguments. It's not a factual proof of anything necessarily. It's not structured that way, but it is an evidence, and that's what these are. These are evidences of something. Um, and evidence is merely a telltale sign of, of something that you're looking to draw a conclusion from. And not necessarily a proof, but an evidence. So today we're going to be talking about the evidence from history. So I want to read Romans 1, 21 through 23. We've kind of been in this and referred to Romans 1 a little bit. We've talked about some of the things and used it as a premise. Romans 1, 21 through 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. All right. Uh, so... Uh, we've referred to this, as I say, a couple of times, talked about how they, they became more educated and kind of lost the sight of the simple things. Um, but we want to refer to this for a different premise, um, and that is that <clears throat> the Bible claims here that uh, the, the, the Gentiles um, knew God at one point in time, makes that claim. We kind of go back and think of the Gentiles as this, as a pagan people, which they were, um, that were always kind of off away from the Jews and never knowing anything. But the Bible claims that they knew God in their own way. Um, it, I mean, not different from truth, but but separate from having a a scripture, which they never did. They had something. Uh, in their cultures, something God had placed there to know God at least on some level. That's the claim here. Um, now, most anthropologists will present this different. They go back and say, well, you know, uh, mankind started out believing in many gods and, and then he evolved and, and we, we started worshiping one god came later. That's actually not true and we're going to see that a little bit today. Uh, that is incredibly false. Uh, it is just the opposite in all of our ancient cultures. We're not going to go through all ancient cultures. Uh, just so you know, we could go through China, we could go through African, we could go through American... In we're, we're not going to touch a lot of them. We're only going to touch a few uh, to see some interesting things. Uh, so, um, the... Another premise here then is that in God, in, in planting himself in humanity, God has left breadcrumbs, if you want, you know, like, like Hansel and Gretel, like he's left breadcrumbs to follow back. So, so all these people could follow back. We should be able to go back as we study history and look at these people and say, wow, they did have this concept of God, a basic 
understanding of God. Uh, and so uh, today we're going to look at four stories. Um, a couple of them we will punctuate with some scripture, but uh, so, so as I say, these, this is going to be a little bit different from the other three evidences, and that's why we placed it last. So uh, I want to talk about Athens first. I uh, wish, wish we had the, the pictures because some is, is dramatic, some of these stories, how, how much it, it illustrates the truth of these stories. Uh, but about, about 600 years before Christ, um, an event occurred in, in, uh, in which there was uh, an incredible plague in Athens. Um, so uh, it was attributed to a king by the name of uh, Megacles. Megacles had um, uh, uh, been attacked, uh, Athens had been attacked by a guy by the name of Cylon, who was a foreign invader, and as in lots of, lots of times, uh, we've had it happen here in Germany, uh, in Russia, there were people inside the country who kind of were sympathizers to this invading force. They didn't like the guy that they had so much. So, uh, so uh, now Ceylon was defeated, um, or Cylon was defeated, and uh, what to do with these leftover people. So they were all pulled up, scared to death. And he said, well, if you come out from wherever you're hiding, I'll be nice to you. Well, he didn't. As soon as they came out, he rounded them up and killed them all. So it was a, the mass genocide. And it was almost immediately after this that, um, that, they, that Athens suffers a plague. They connected the two. It might not have had anything to do with anything. It might have. Um, so, so, of course, we don't know that. Uh, but they connected it. So Athens... Um, decided that they started to need off, to, to offer sacrifices. So the first thing they did was found Ceylon, Ceylon's god, and offered a sacrifice to him. Um, they, that didn't work. So they started going around to all the different gods and offering on the, all their altars, uh, which it didn't work. Uh, so they had to have a council. At the council, they, they said, well, uh, there's obviously a god out there that we've offended. This is their logic, not ours. There's a God that we've offended. And so we must search out this God. And, uh, and, and we don't know who this is. So, um, so they, they came to this conclusion. On the island of Crete is a man. He's a prophet and he's a poet. Everybody knows him. Um, his name is Epimenides. He will know what to do. So they, they, they selected a man by the name of Nicias to, to go, and Nicias thought it was stupid to go. He said, to bring another god to Athens is like bringing stone to a quarry. That's, that, was his, he, that was his thought. Uh, and uh, so he went, he brought, he brought Epimenides, and true to form, Epimenides gets there, and we have a quote from Epimenides, and, he, and Epimenides' reaction was that, it should be easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That's, that's from, if you've heard that, that's Epimenides' quote. And so he's a very famous poet. Um, so, um, so Epimenides came to the council. He says, here's what you're going to do. I want you to get a, I forget how many sheep, but he said, bring hundreds of sheep. They had hundreds of sheep. Black, white, they don't care. Don't let them eat for a day. And then what you're going to do is you're going to let them free to, to graze on the hill. 
wherever you find a sheep, you're gonna all, all you people are gonna follow them around. And wherever a sheep goes and lays down before he grazes, that's not natural. So we would have to figure that's a supernatural event uh, because these they haven't eaten for a day. And and those you're gonna build an altar there, and you're gonna kill that to sacrifice to this unknown god. Is it sounding familiar? Well, they did it. They thought it sounded stupid. They're like, yeah. they're all going to eat. And he's like, okay. So, so, well, they followed him around and they found dozens of sheep that didn't. They they laid down without grazing. They thought, that is crazy that this happened. They haven't eaten in a day. He said, build altars there. They had another problem. They said, we can't sacrifice on an altar that hasn't been dedicated. There's no name. You can't sacrifice to a god with no name. He'd be offended. So for many of you said, listen, if God answered, if this, this unknown God answered and made these sheep pass the test, he's obviously listening to you. He obviously is not offended at what we're, we're doing here. Let's be logical about this. He's like, but if you want to, let's, let's compromise. He said, let's write on each altar to the unknown God. Now is that sounding familiar? Okay. So let's meet Paul. Someone want to read Acts chapter 17, verse 32 and 33? Okay. So this is interesting, of course, we connect the two. These are not accidental. Paul quoted in the scriptures, Paul quoted Epimenides on a on a completely different topic. If you read Titus and he says, One of your own poets or one of your own prophets has said, All Cretans are liars. That was a quote of Epimenides. Uh, Paul was well read. Um, and talks about Cretans. What, where was Epimenides from? He was from the island of Crete. Um, and which is interesting that he considers Epimenides a prophet. Um, that's interesting. Well, he wasn't a Jew. God left breadcrumbs in these other nations, and Paul recognizes that. Um, so... Now, we, one other thing that I want to look at here... Uh, because this is this is where it gets important and kind of where we form the foundation of uh, of the class today. The word here on on this altar. Well, actually, let me let me back up. Over a period of time, these altars, there was as I say, dozens of them, fell into disrepair, and, and two guys, two old guys, were friends for a long time had been at this council. In fact, one of them had been the man to suggest that they couldn't offer uh, without a without a name on it. Uh, they walked by and saw one of these old altars. And um, they said, we need to put this one in and keep this in good condition. Because they recognized that and one of them said, you know, I wish this one could be worshipped 
rather than all the rest in Athens because he's the one that actually did anything. For a while, uh, Theos was worshipped and, and God, all these other gods were ignored because of it. And, but, you know, how people are just like in, like in the Bible, they went back and went back and went back to all their other gods. Um, and so the inscription was on this altar in, in Greek was Agnosto Theos or Theos. We recognize Theos as God, right? From theology, we talk about it. And agnostic, right? Which just means unknown God or to not know God. And uh, so the word Theos is interesting because it became, it, it was, it, it forms the root for what we call Dios, Deos, uh, which is a Latin word for God. It also became the, the foundation of the word Zeus. Now, Theos ended up becoming a general word for God, but, at, but when within a hundred years of this event, Theos was the formal name in Greece for God. Not this God or that God, but God. Plato used it. Aristotle used it in their writings as the name for God. That's the significance of this event. In, in Greece. But in time it became general and it became not used that much and they favored Zeus. And so isn't it interesting that Paul gets there and he's looking for a way to connect to people and he's looking. He's like, how can I connect to these people? How can I proclaim them the true God? In fact, when translating the fir- or when putting these, translating the Bible in, in the first Greek copies and things like that, they didn't use Yahweh. They didn't just bring over the Hebrew names, but they're looking for Greek names. And they said they don't find Zeus. They can't because Zeus is thoroughly pagan and he's a created being. But they they looked for the only word in the Greek language that they could use that would be an equivalent. And that was Theos, this unknown almighty creator that actually did something. Uh, and so, so there's these breadcrumbs, even in ancient Greece, that go back and show this this link. Now, there's a similar uh, event uh, in also in the Bible. And again, these aren't proofs of anything, but they are certainly interesting. Um, it happens in Genesis 14. Does someone want to read Genesis 14, verse 17 through 22? And this won't take quite as long to go through. Um, Tell me these are shorter. Genesis 17, or 14, 17 through 22. Who's got it? No readers. No readers.
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread of the thong or sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Okay. That's, 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 that's good enough to... What verse was that that you read through? That was the last verse the 24. Okay, that's good. So, uh, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And there's just a, a really interesting detail. This is actually a, a, it bears a similarity to the story in, with Paul, actually. Um, so these are Chaldean cities. Um, the Bible, in, in, just in, in Genesis, lists over 30 cities of the Chaldeans. We have Canaanites, which these are. Uh, there's all Amorites and all sorts of ites, right? And so Melchizedek, the, the event here is that um, Abraham has uh, gone out to defeat Ketelomer, who stole a bunch of stuff from, from Abraham, and, and he aligns himself with, with some of these kings. One of them, surprisingly, is the king of Sodom. You think, wow, how bad does that? This is not the same time as as Lot is there. This is this is a while before, so we don't know what happens in these years. These you know several decades between the, this event and then with Lot. So um, <clears throat> so there so Melchizedek and 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 uh, this king whose name is Vera. Uh, we find that out in the beginning of the chapter 14 if we read that. Vera, uh, king of of Sodom and among others, go out and they defeat. Well, he's coming back, and um, Melchizedek personally comes out to greet Abraham. And he greets him in the name of the Most High God. Now, that is a name that is not Hebrew. I mean, uh, one of the words comes from Hebrew, El, which is like Elohim. But this is El Elyon. And El Elyon is a Canaanite name. Much like Theos was a Greek word. El Elyon is the Canaanite concept of God. And Abraham doesn't go, whoa, that's a pagan deity. I don't accept gifts in the name of pagan deities. He accepts it. He accepts that he is blessed by God. In fact, later he says, I have lifted my hands to the Lord Most High God. He says, I have lifted my hands to Yahweh, Jehovah, El Elyon. He equates the Canaanite reference to the Hebrew reference. Though, after that, Bera comes out and wants to give him a blessing. He rejects it. No, no, no. I only allow God to bless me. I'm not going to let you or your God I'm not going to let that be considered a reason why I'm successful. No way. He draws a distinction between the two. So not any, much like, much like later on in the New Testament, they're not going to refer to any deity as God. Right? Uh, they were not going to accept Zeus as an equivalent for God. They looked for something that they could equate that that didn't violate the principles of God. Much like we would not equate Allah. Allah is just another name for God. No, it is not. 
Allah is a sun god, or a moon god, excuse me. He's dating to Egypt. It is not another name for God. Um, and we will see that again, uh, a similar illustration. Not any reference to a deity is the equivalent of God. So, so they drew distinctions. But yet again, we see even buried in a massively pagan area like Chaldea, a little breadcrumb, a little trail, a holdover from something previous, which indicates that the first was the was this belief in a god and it just kind of gets lost and surrounded by all these other gods and all these other things and the majority starts to evolve this polytheism and the people found that little strand of truth in there to be able to connect God to be able to connect truth to a culture so we're going to leave the scriptures because these are these last two. Any any questions or statements so far? Is this interesting? Yeah. So I want to talk about the Incas. Um, in the early 1900s, uh, Machu Picchu was discovered. Not really. It had been known, kind of, and forgotten hidden in the forest of Peru. A guy saw it. You can't really see it unless you're looking for it and you have to be in the right location. Um, it was actually a guy by the name of Thomas Paine, not that Thomas Paine. Uh, that Thomas Paine was about 200 years older, or about 100 years older. So, uh, he was a missionary from England. Um, and he went back and told... Um, or, or someone dis discovered it and went back and told Thomas Paine, excuse me. Uh, Thomas Paine did not see it. Uh, Thomas Paine went there as a missionary um, and introduced them to Christ. Uh, however, their religious history is much older th than that. Um, Machu Picchu and all of any sites that you would go to Peru to, uh, to see all their old ruins or anything like that, they were built by a emperor, if you want to call them that. Their emperors were pretty local. <laughs> um, by the name of Pachacuti. I, I'm massacring that name. I'm sure of it. So, um, and um, more than just their political leader, more than just their, you know, uh, visionary of engineering, he was their spiritual leader. Uh, and his story is very interesting. So, um, if we, if you study the Incas, the first thing you come across is that they worship Inti, the god of the sun. Right? That's their major deity. Um, and uh, the Spanish invasion in 1575, uh, which is about 150 years or so after, after Pachacuti, um, uh, opened up some of our understanding of, of this people, not just stealing their gold and whatever else. Uh, <clears throat> Pachacuti had written religious hymns, which is interesting. So, so they started looking through that. Uh, and it shows his own spiritual journey. And uh, he reasoned that Inti, here's this God Inti, but Inti follows the same path every day. 
Yeah. What kind of a God can't deviate from his own path? Right? And he noticed that Inti, as powerful as he seems to be, can have his light blocked out by a lower cloud. Well, what kind of a God? He, so he reasoned, what kind of a God can be uh, diminished by something inferior? And this is, I mean, this is old. I mean, this is, you're doing the best you can, right? You're just trying to reason things out. And doing the best you can, he comes to some evidences of some truth. And he says, he says well, not only that, he said, Inti seems more like a laborer than a creator. He, he has to do the same things. It's like he's forced to do this, follow the same path every day. They didn't know about the round world and, you know, they don't understand it. They're interpreting everything as God's. And Inti just goes around the same thing every day. So regular, just like a laborer. Get up, punch the clock, go home. That's our God. He's like, I want something better than that. I want to worship something better than that. And so he researched his own folklore, his own theology, I guess. And they found something called Varakuchi, which is interesting. It was a deity, uh, or excuse me, Virakocha. Virakocha uh, means sea foam. That's how it literally translates, which I think is actually interesting. Virakocha was, in their folklore, the creator of all things, which is kind of interesting that the Bible presents the, the center of creation as coming out of the sea, which I think is probably a link there. Um, so, so he rationalized that this creator of all things must be higher than Inti. But there was a problem as he got together with the priests and the the uh, you know, they said there's going to be an insurrection if you try to get rid of the worship of Inti in favor of Viracocha. So they compromised. What they said is, we'll make Viracocha the worship of the ruling class only and the elites, the priests, and we will let the lower people continue to worship Inti. Well, that led to a very unfortunate thing and, and probably not on, on accident. Uh, 150 years later when they invaded, when the conquistadors from Spain invaded, who were they going to attack? The elites with all the stuff. So they, they wiped them out, leaving Viracocha without any worshippers. There was nothing to preserve there was no following to, to make the worship of the creator of all things. And some people even surmise, maybe Viracocha, or God, Theos, or Elion, however, whatever word you want to refer to him, was kind of mad at this compromise and said, all right, I'm taking it away. God's done that. He's done that and just read the book of Judges. He's done that quite a bit. I'll take it away when you return to me. And so they had to wait 300 years to get 
the gospel. And he said, well, what about the conquistadors? They brought Catholicism and at least information about God. Yeah, but you're not so quick to accept the gospel from people who are killing you. It's just, you know, I don't tend to listen to people who are trying to do me harm. So they had to wait for missionaries from England in the early 1900s to really get the gospel. But when they did, they responded. Many of these people responded to it because they could draw on their own culture. This Vera Kocha, this unknown God, let me proclaim him to you. The last one that we will talk about is the Santal people of India. The Santal people of India are the oldest tribe of Indians, not American Indians, actual Indians. They're the oldest people living in India. Um, take it for what it's worth. Wikipedia says that they are dated to 4,000 years ago as far as the people in India. Uh, their own story is that they came there a long time ago. Uh, this, this story is so amazing. Uh, it's so interesting. So, uh, let me butcher two more names here. Um, this people were discovered in 1867. Um, they're not the majority of people. Uh, there are only about two and a half million of them remaining. Uh, they live in northeast. They live north of Calcutta. That's northeast, up by Nepal, Bangladesh, in that area. Uh, in 1867, they were discovered by two guys by the name of Lars Skretrud and Hans Borison, a Norwegian and a Danish guy. Um, they do not practice Hinduism like the rest of India. And their language is harder than most Indian languages to learn. So these guys... Like, okay, we're going to present the gospel to them, but we've got to, uh, we've got to study their language. So they studied, and as soon as they were capable to speak it, they started, you know, they kind of knew some cultural things and, and whatnot. They started presenting the gospel, translating the Bible into the language and whatnot. Um, like going into any new place, you kind of expect a slow acceptance. People are going to give up their their own religion pretty slow. And as they presented the gospel, immediately they started bringing people to Christ. They were having 80 baptisms a day. Two guys. And they were blown away by, by this reception. So much so that when they sent word back and said, we need more missionaries here. The people back home were dubious. They thought either they don't understand the culture right or their their methods are wrong. You're not supposed to have this kind of growth. <laughs> so they found out what it was in this culture that as they presented the gospel, what made it acceptable. And the fact is that the Bible mirrored their entire history, but also explained gaps in their own theology. It... it, it it filled in the blanks and they were like, wow, that's great. This is the missing piece. So here's their history. And, and uh, a man by the name of Coleon explained this. Uh, he was one of their first converts. He was a sage um, of, among, among the Sentile people and he explained it to them. Um, because the odd thing was that they 
they had a god that they didn't sacrifice to. They sacrificed to some of the more, would be more like an equivalent almost to Satan, a spirit being of some sort, named Marang Buru. Um, so they sacrificed to him, but they had kind of this theology of God. Like, okay, we have a god, uh, and his name was Sakurju. So, and Sakurju means genuine God or genuine deity. That's, uh, and that was like their theological God. That was like, okay, formally we accept this, but they sacrificed to Maranguru. And he's like, why do you sacrifice to something that you don't believe is God? So he says, well, let me tell you this our story. He said, we were, all of man was, there was the first man and woman, they were named Haram and Ayo. Um, they were from way west of India. They were way over somewhere. They got drunk and woke up and realized that they were naked. They were forced to leave their land and their children soon became corrupted. Um, So Sakurjiu hid a holy couple on a mountain and flooded the rest of the earth. Okay? After this, Sakurjiu divided up all of the peoples on the earth into different languages. Some of those people had to migrate for many years. but found no rest. Desperate in the mountains, they were trapped by these mountains and couldn't find a way through. And so, they left the worship of Sakurjiu because he didn't seem to be giving them any any way to find their homeland or anything like that. So they left. And they called on Maranguru, which means spirits of the mountains, to show them some way to get through. And they found, uh, based on their history, what we believe to be the Khyber Pass in Pakistan. Which, if you look at it, I wish I had a picture. I mean, I have a picture up there, but it's not there. And it's just, it's like you can, you zoom out, like way above, and it's just mountains, 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 and then there's this little pass. And you can see how they could be completely lost in this <clears throat> mountainous wilderness, scared for their lives, not knowing where they're going, like a maze. And then he said, as soon as they pledged that if, if Maranguru would, would find them a way to get out of this and, and get to some land, that that they would sacrifice to him, and they would they would have an allegiance to him. Almost immediately they found the, the mountain spirits led them to the Khyber Pass. And so that's why we worship Maranguru. Uh, shortly after that, after they, they continued to migrate, found their current home, and they began worshiping the sun worshipping, doing, practicing sorcery, all sorts of weird things. 
and this Mananguru was they recognized as kind of the evil god but they felt connected to him and so he said until you came and presented the gospel and presented this news of Jesus Christ we had no way to reconcile this covenant that we have with Maranguru and wanting to worship Sakurajiu, the genuine God. There was this great, this great divide between what we, what we feel compelled to do and, and this, this religious belief that we have. How profound. So, so when he presents Jesus Christ to him and sacrifice for sin and, and, Getting rid of, they understood the concepts of slavery to something, being compelled by something, and, and uh, the the concept of of Satan was it, all these were little breadcrumbs in there, all the way through the story that is so close. I mean, little details are different, obviously. Um, but it is an evidence that God has planted himself in humanity. And humans are not so far, the Bible says, that we grope for him. Like like we're kind of, like we're close, but we're just blind. We can't quite get him. Uh, so here's all these details. An evidence of, of the fact that Bible says that, that people weren't new him. And it was their own imaginations that they they started worshiping created things like the sun like the moon like the mountains like the whatever they left that that original genuine God whether it be Sakurju or El Elyon that these are all and, and a lot of wise people have, have thought when they go to a people let's not just go there and tell them everything you know is wrong. Not everything you know is wrong. Right. We can talk about Shang-Ti in China. Same thing. The God Most High. So all these things. They look for, much like Paul, look for a way to connect to something genuine. There has to be something in these people's culture that's genuine, that links them to God. And that is, a, to me, an incredible evidence of the existence of God. The fact that all people, it's not just random, it's not just here, it's not just one over here. You can do this again and again and again, and the stories are similar. God has wanted to be connected to the people he made. Any thoughts as we close? Okay. So we will transition. Uh, I think the ending of that was a good jumping off point and we will start talking about Christ next week.